Good morning, Bethel. Man, there's a bunch of you this morning. Maybe it's just we all ate a little more, and so there's just more of us. It's not that there's more of us, there's more of us, if you know what I'm saying. Uh, Would you bow with me in prayer, and then uh, we're going to dive into our message here. Let's pray. Our Father, while we, uh, we joke lovingly with one another, we do pray that there would be more of you in us. Uh, more of you in us, Lord. Uh, we need to regularly die to ourselves and have the beauty of Christ formed more and more in us. Uh, Father, the world needs to see more and more of the triune God in us. Uh, to that end, Lord, we give ourselves to the study of your word. Uh, we come together as a community of faith and we lift up you, Lord. We orient our hearts around you. We sing songs not just because they're good for our, um, our countenance or that they're fun, but because they help shape our beliefs and our very soul. And we want all of our praise, Lord, our songs, our giving, our greeting, all that we do, Lord, to be saturated by your revealed word, the presentation of yourself to mankind. So God, through this exercise, through this discipline, may we again know you more and in the knowing you more, become more and more like your son Jesus. May his character and nature be formed in us. So give us attention now to your word and to your spirit who drives it home to our hearts. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you want to open your Bibles, or at least have it in front of you, and I'll caution you at the outset, uh, we're starting a new series here. We're going to be uh, running through the scriptures and chasing down lots of different passages. Uh, This is a little bit different than our normal custom. Uh, Normally, we take a book and we plow right through it. But for the next three weeks, we're going to do a series on the topic of marriage. And the title of this series is The End of Marriage. Uh, Vince Lombardi, a very famous uh, football coach for the Packers, was uh, well known for beginning each season by standing in front of his team and holding up a pigskin and saying, gentlemen, this is a football. And uh, it sounds a little bit condescending, but what he was doing was making sure that at the beginning of each year that he did not assume anything, but they instructed on the fundamentals and taught the team as a whole, the essentials of the game as they wanted it to be performed. And there are several trends that are affecting um, our general view of marriage today, creating a sense for Christians, I think, that marriage as we know it is in serious jeopardy. And there's, I'll list a couple of these trends for you. First of all, there is the declining interest in marriage. I'm not sure if you're aware of this. But people are waiting longer and longer uh, to get married. Uh, In fact, not only are some waiting longer and longer, but many are just opting not to get married at all. In fact, many are uh, opting instead just simply for cohabitation, for living together. In 2010, a study done by the Pew Research uh, Group indicates that one in four of 25 to Uh, 34-year-olds, one in four, 25% uh, were unmarried. That was in 2010. That is a huge and staggering statistic, uh, very different from years prior to that. Uh, We also see that there are uh, 
there, are, there is a declining interest in marriage overall, whereas in 1960, 72% of the population in America, uh, 18 years or older, was married. In 2000, that dropped to, um, can't read my own writing here, 57%. And in 2014, it dropped to less than 50%. In other words, in 2014, for the first time in recorded history in our nation, there were more singles than married. That is, that is a huge, uh, phenomenal change in our uh, social world. Um, there have consistently been a large number of divorces. You've all heard the statistic that the, the, the divorce rate is about 50%, and it's very similar to that for Christians. Uh, there is a book by Shanti Feldham, which is in your notes, or indicated in your notes, which challenges that statistic a bit, but nevertheless, a huge number of divorces. And then, of course, maybe the, one of the more daunting things in recent history is that the courts, the Supreme Court, struck down the traditional definition of marriage in 2015. And I would simply say that these personal and social phenomena are causing many to ask the question, is this the end of marriage, or the end of marriage as we know it, or is that the trajectory that we're on? Is this going to become an outdated institution or something that is distorted beyond its recognition? I believe the answer to that question is a resounding no. I really do, with all of my heart. I think we have some tough days ahead. But I think the answer to that question is a resounding no. In fact, I would go so far as to say that the darker the backdrop of what we're experiencing socially that the brighter the light that is contrasted against it. Consider the last really good viewing you had of the northern lights and where you were. And the further out of town you get and the further away from the light pollution, if we can call light a pollution in Fairbanks, that just doesn't sound right, does it? I love light. I'm missing it right now. But the further you get out into the darkness, the more striking that display of the aurora will be. And I think there is a bit of an opportunity for Christian marriage today. And that's part of what I want to put in front of us, a little bit of optimism here. I believe that quality Christian marriages that can reflect the beauty and the light and the glory of God within those marriages as they're done well will stand out all the more brightly against the backdrop of what we're seeing. Uh, Jesus wasn't kidding when he said a light, a city on a hill cannot be hidden. And I think that's the opportunity that we have as Christians in our own marriages if we will but take them seriously. And if we will handle them with the way and the intent and the purpose that God meant. Uh, I would also remind us that uh, many of the church's clearest doctrines that were developed over the ages were forged in the crucible of attack. It was when things got hard that Christians got to work and clarified important truths and understanding and living and things got sharpened. Uh, Even go back to the first century. We had the synoptic gospels, but we had uh, the Gnostics and others coming along challenging the deity of Christ. And so we have John write his gospel, which focuses on the deity of Jesus. It was in attack that we got something even clearer, even better, even more helpful. It was the Arian attack against the Trinity in the 4th century that prompted Augustine to write some of his clear doctrine about the Trinity. And we have that because of that time. 
It was the abuses of the Roman Catholic Church which produced the Reformation. We're about ready to to celebrate its 500-year anniversary this next year, in 2017. But it was in that, those kinds of abuses where the church rose up and took back the scriptures in the common language and a, many of, a number of other things. And we could go on and on about that, but it was those times of attack and challenge and when things were being distorted and when things looked really dark that the church and Christians responded and got to work and produced a greater clarity and light that was necessary. And so I want to just relate this to marriage kind of as we know it today. Um, What has long been assumed in marriage will now have to be articulated and argued for and shown from the pages of Scripture and from the pages of our lives, which for the observing world is really the only Scripture that most people will read. So we will have to articulate and demonstrate and exercise the beauty of Christian marriage even better now than ever before. Uh, and I think there's a, there's a reason to be hopeful about this. Sam Andreadis, uh, Andreadis uh, our speaker for Christian Thought Forum here the past couple weeks, made an excellent point in his first message at the Christian Thought Forum. He said this, he says that God only commands good things. Do you remember that? I heard that and I hit pause on the recording because I wasn't here. So I listened to it after the fact, which, by the way, those recordings are up on the website now. And I hit pause, and I just had to think about that. Is that true? Does God only command good things? And it's absolutely true. And so if that's, if that's the case, friends, if, if God only commands good things, then by the fact that we are believing and affirming and living out the teachings of Scripture, then we're on solid ground. And we have nothing to fear and so I think there are a lot of Christians out there that are sort of hitting the panic button with regard to marriage. I don't think we need to hit the panic button. We need to hit the steady as she goes button, if that button exists anywhere. You know, we just need to keep on and be steady. Because marriage, when it is done his way, God's way, will be interlaced with the beauty that God created for it. If it's God's good command, then its goodness will be apparent. Never more than when the world is distorting it, okay? The title for the series is a play on words here. Uh, Again, while many, I think, are hitting the panic button with regard to marriage, is this the end of marriage as we know it? Uh, We, as a church, are going to commit ourselves over the next three weeks to understanding what is the end of marriage. That is, what is its purpose, What is its intent? What is its design, its telos, its trajectory? Why did God make this thing? And what is he doing with it? What is he doing with it in our lives and in the world's life? Why has God made this thing and what is he doing with it? So that's what we're going to do. We're going to consider the good design of marriage and the rightful exercise of that good design. We're going to do that in three parts. Today we're going to basically ask two questions. We're going to do six questions, two each each Sunday. Uh, part one is this, what is marriage and who is it for? What is marriage and who is it for? That's today. Uh, next week, part two will be what are the goals of marriage? Not just our own personal goals, but what are God's goals? And along with that, what are its enemies? And the third part will be what are some essential tools for marriage? We want to be practical after all with this. And then finally, what is a successful marriage? How would you know it if you saw it?
Now, I have to offer some caveats here for, especially for singles as we dive into this, because I know there are a number of you sitting here. In fact, statistically, there are as many, as I cited earlier, there's as many singles in our nation uh, today as there are uh, married couples or married individuals. But, uh, and the church is following suit. There are more singles in the church now today than maybe ever before. And so I want to just identify a couple of things. Number one, there's way more than just one kind of single. Okay? Uh, there are those of you who are not yet of marrying age. Maybe you're 16, 17, 18. If you're my kids, 20, whatever, that's still not marrying age. 25, 30, still not marrying age. <coughs> so there's those of you who are not yet of marrying age. You're considering marriage someday. And it's interesting, if you talk to some of these singles and you ask them what they think about marriage, it's amazing how negative a perspective they can have of it. That's really interesting today. So there's that group of singles. There's those of you who are married of marrying age and you desire simply to remain single. You're perfectly happy remaining single and you're content. There's those of you who are marrying age and you desire to be married and you're not. And you may be one of the more sensitive groups in the room this morning just going to be honest about that. There's those of you who were once married and now find yourselves to be single due to divorce. Also a very sensitive group. And there's those of you who were once married and you now find yourself to be single due to the loss of a spouse. So I simply wanted to, I just want to say this, I want to acknowledge this for all of us. There's more than one kind of single out here. There is an array of singleness, a lot of different circumstances under which one finds themselves to be single. And I think the temptation for anybody in that particular array that I just listed, there's a, there's a temptation for any of them to say, well, this series then is not for me. This is for others. There's nothing for me to learn here. Uh, there's going to be no practical application immediately available for me. Uh, so I might as well fill in the gap. Go home and watch the Hawks, Seahawks game or whatever. Uh, there may even be a temptation for some of you to take offense that such a series would be offered. And I want to say at the outset to the singles, hear me loud and clear now, that marriage teaches all of us about God. We don't have to go into it experientially to learn from it. In other words, not just marriage the experience, but marriage the institution, marriage as a gift. The fact that it exists at all and that God gave it tells us an awful lot about God himself. And so, just as we don't have to be the recipient of every spiritual gift, uh, neither do we have to ourselves be the recipient of marriage to understand something about God through it. Uh, And so, though you may carry some great disappointments with regard to marriage, there is still truths to be learned here, and I want to challenge you with that. So I want to identify with you on one hand in your singleness, but I want to challenge you on the other hand to lift your mind's perspective above just your personal experience and to consider the theological implications of marriage and of God and his goodness for the fact that he has given it. So a please approach with a student's posture, if you would. Secondly, I want to encourage you singles that each week I will, to the best of my ability, try to put on the lens, not just of a married man, but of a single person. And I will try to consider some of the things that I'm saying and to think with your mind and to, and to imagine myself into your feelings, into your uh, circumstance to the best of my ability. I will fail at that, obviously, uh, but I will attempt to do that. Okay? Enough dancing. Ready to dive in here? 
What is marriage? What is marriage? Easy, easy question to answer, right? Uh, in fact, children pretend to be married. They play house. Uh, they adopt even husband-wife roles in their play, as least as they see it. They, we might look at this and go, if children can mimic it, then certainly it's a simple thing, right? It's simple then. Kids can mimic it, so of course we all know what it is. So is it just living together? Is it just the ultimate and necessary conclusion of intense love and affection for another person? Is it just a piece of paper that the state stamps, endorses? Uh, another question, which I won't hardly go into because it's just too, too much, but whose domain is marriage? Does it belong to the church, the state? Who, you know, who does it belong to? That's a fascinating question. This might sound funny that I bring this up, but I actually had this posed to me a number of years ago. I had a couple come to me, uh, very much in love. They were engaged, and they had a plan. They had a date set for their wedding, months and months off in the distance, and they basically came to me and, and asked a funny question. They said, Eric, what is the minimalistic essence of marriage? What's the smallest amount of marriage that, that we could, by way of a ceremony, um, go through to be rightfully considered married without detracting from our big ceremony coming up? And I'm, I'm thinking, what, what are we into here? What are you guys asking me? I don't understand this. And the long and short of it was, he was in the military and he was getting ready to be deployed. <clears throat> and so while they had a date set for marriage that was off in the future, it was much more advantageous for them to be married in a sense right now. And so they were facing this dilemma of what do we do? We have a plan. We have a ceremony. We have people coming to a place and we're looking forward to celebrating this with our family and our friends and yet we really need to be married now. So what is it that we do? And as we considered what could be done, they basically asked, what's the minimum? What's the littlest amount that we can do and rightfully be married without detracting from this other thing? Well, that kind of got me thinking. I mean, just chase that down in your own mind sometime when you've got some room to think. What words need to be spoken? By whom? To whom? Does, does something need to be said over them? Does someone need to witness? Does there need a piece of paper? Who... When, when you break it down to its element, it becomes difficult. And that was the thing that was startling for me. Uh, sometimes it's the simplest things that defy explanation the most, right? What's water? Well, it's, it's water. What's it look like? Water. What's it taste like? Water. What's it feel like? It's watery, you know? How do you get behind that more and marriage is kind of one of those things so i have a working definition here it's on your handout <coughs> and uh i suspect this will grow and mature over the years but uh this is what i have right now marriage is essentially a covenant of self-giving a covenant of self-giving that is made in three directions the covenant is made in three directions, and it's entered into to achieve a God-ordained purpose. Uh, that last phrase gives me a lot of wiggle room. I can smuggle a lot of things into there. Uh, but this is effectively going to work as our outline here this morning. Uh, if you would turn in your Bibles to Genesis 2.22, here we find really the seminal passage of marriage in the Scriptures, something that Jesus and the Apostle Paul come back to. 
Genesis 2, starting in verse 22 to 25. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. And the man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. Amazingly, the scriptures begin and end with the marriage union. Fascinating thing. In Genesis 2, Adam and his wife are united in marriage. And in Revelation 19, particularly, we see the marriage supper of the Lamb, where the church, which is described as the bride of Christ, is reunited to her groom. The Bible begins and ends with marriage language. In other words, as we look at the narrative arc of all of Scripture and all that what God is doing, and sort of this drama on earth and the redemption that God is doing, it's cast in marriage terms. In other words, marriage is not just a human construct. It's not just a human institution or something that the court defines or something that the state sanctions. It's not simply that. Marriage fundamentally is God's. And it is the vehicle through which he used, that he uses in the scriptures to communicate what he is doing redemptively with humanity. Uh, so God is doing something big with all of us and marriage is the way that he conveys that to us. We might say it this way. Marriage is then a living parable. A living parable. Something that is carried on and acted among the general public that can be read, that can be understood, that can communicate about what God is doing with his people. Um, it illustrates it, the dramatic arc of what God is doing with mankind. Marriage is then a teacher. It's not just a social arrangement for practical living. Let me say that again. It's not just a social arrangement for practical living. In fact, the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 7 says this, those who marry will face many difficulties in life. And I want to spare you of all of this. Paul, the romantic, right? Doesn't that make your heart swoon, ladies? You know, Those who marry will face many difficulties in life. And I can tell you guys have some turkey in your gut because if you'd heard that, you would go, amen to that. That's true. Paul is telling us that the more difficult life is the married life over and above the single life. If you're looking for simplicity and ease in life, can I just tell you, I mean this wholeheartedly, stay single. No offense, honey, you know, but stay single. (laughs) Do it. If that's what's important to you, do that. You will be freed for service for God and for so many other things. Marriage confines and restricts. Singleness keeps you free. But there's a reason to get married. Let's, let's work, keep on our definition or I'll get in trouble here. Marriage is a covenant relationship. <clears throat> now, covenant isn't a word that we use a lot today. Maybe in, your, in real estate or something like that, you have covenants, which define maybe how many properties you can have on a piece of land or uh, how many animals you can have or what kind or something like this. Um, uh, but, but 
marriage is a covenant, and it's described as such in the scriptures. In fact, in that passage in Genesis 2 that I just read, where it talks about the, the two coming together, uh, the word there is debak, and it is, it's, a, it's a word that literally means glued together, adhered, two things becoming one. Uh, the passage is uh, translated in the NIV, united to his wife. In the NAS and King James, it's cleave. In the ESV, it's hold fast. But these, this term of uniting or adhering or becoming one is spoken of throughout the scriptures in terms of covenant. In fact, I'll give you a passage in Deuteronomy 10.20. You might just jot it down and you can come back to it later. But it says this, fear the Lord your God and serve him. Hold fast to him. This is our covenant word, right? The Bach. Be united to him. Adhere to him. Hold fast and take your oaths in his name. And so there is this covenant making and this oneness that is, that is right here together conceptually in this word. There's another passage in Malachi 2.14 which says this. You ask why? It is because the Lord is the witness between you and the wife of your youth. You have been unfaithful to her, though she is your partner, the wife of your marriage covenant. And so again, it's spoken of there. What I mean to just simply say is that marriage is a covenant. It's a covenant at its essence. It's an enduring relational connectedness. And a covenant is by nature something that is kept and maintained. It's not ignored or rescinded or left aside or disregarded. It is enduring and steadfast and it's necessary because it carries us through the days that we wouldn't stay put if we hadn't made a covenant. That's why covenants are necessary. In fact, there's a fascinating, for your own study this week, go back to Exodus 33. There's a fascinating passage there about the Lord whom Moses argues with to keep his covenant. This is his God is taking Israel out of Egypt and they fall into sin uh, with idol worship. And God basically says, you guys go on up, go up to the promised land. I'll send my angel with you. I'll give you the land, but I'm not going with you. In fact, if I was, good, if I was to go with you, I'm liable to kill you along the way. Affectionate words from the Lord. And so Moses, you know, puts the tent up out, tent of meeting. He goes and he argues with the Lord and he says, don't send us if you're not going to go. Come with us. And he tells them, remember that we are your people. He asks God to remember his covenant that is made with his people. Moses asks the Lord. And so then it's amazing. And so God does so. So in a sense, this is a bit of a crude analogy. Even God is asked to be to remember his covenant made for his people, that he would deal with them lovingly. If it's true that God needed to be reminded of this, and I can't quite say that with a clear conscience, but if it's true that that reminding needed to happen, how much more for you and I? Marriage is a covenant because we would not stay in it otherwise. If it were only an optional relationship or a matter of present convenience, it would have a good run. But it would have a certain end. As soon as we learn that our beautiful bride that we love dearly has bad breath in the morning, right? Or our, our, our good-looking, strong husband whom we love dearly has absolutely no idea how to load a dishwasher, or even worse, he knows how to load the dishwasher. He just pretends not to, right? <laughs> you know? these, these things. We'd fly off the handles and we'd say, forget it. I'm not 
course, these are little things, but if it were just a matter of convenience, we would opt out when the grass looked greener. Secondly, marriage is a mutual covenant of self-giving. <clears throat> and it may be that this second part is, I think, what is so forgotten in our culture today. A mutual covenant of self-giving. I think our culture is so consumeristic that it tends to approach marriage simply with the idea of, what can I get? What can I get for especially the best value for the least amount of input? Thinking with the ever-important I and me. That is our culture through and through. But a covenant, a marriage is a covenant of self-giving. In Genesis 2.18, as God surveys all of his creation, he says this, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. A helper suitable for him. This passage in Genesis, in this passage, Eve is described as Adam's helper, one who would give of herself to the aid and support of her husband, a helper. And I've I've talked to you many times before about this, that this word helper here is not an inferior word. We hear it in our culture and we think lackey, sidekick, right? It's not these things. In fact, the word azer, the Hebrew word azer, is most commonly used in the scripture of God as the helper of mankind, That Eve is called to be a helper to her husband, Adam, is a strong and dignifying purpose in life. But it is one of self-giving. She's to give of herself for her husband. And she's not the only partner to do this kind of self-giving in the relationship. In the New Testament, especially in Ephesians 5, Paul calls upon husbands to love their wives as what? As Christ loved the church. What did Christ do for the church? What has he done for us? He gave his life for us. He was ultimately self-giving. And so these, these are the roles that are given to husband and wife in the covenant of marriage. It is a covenant of self-giving. Each one giving to the other person. It is a mutual covenant of self-giving, and it is made in three directions. So this is going to maybe be new information for some of you. Some of you go, yeah, I knew that. Didn't everybody know that? When we gather together for um, a wedding ceremony, I want you to pay attention to the next time that you go to one and just watch how it's carried out. The first thing that I want you to, to recognize is that there is an aspect of this covenant making that is made to God. In other words, there's a part of the ceremony that we call the declaration of intent. And it sounds like this. I, groom, will take you, bride, right, uh, to be my wife, to live together. The question is asked, will you, groom, take this bride to be your wife, to live together in holy marriage? Will you love her, comfort her, keep her in sickness and in health, and forsaking all others, be faithful to her as long as you both shall live? That's the question that's given. Notice uh, an important subtlety within the marriage ceremony. Which direction are the husband and wife facing, or the the couple facing at this point? They're facing forward. They're not facing each other at this point. The declaration of intent is a promise, a covenant made forward vicariously through the pastor or the priest to God. And so one of the directions of the covenant making is to God. They face forward in making this affirmation. 
And then once doing that, after that intent is stated and articulated and not assumed, then the pastor will say, will you turn and face each other? And now the covenant is going to take on a second dimension here. This covenant is now going to be made to one another. And this is where they exchange vows. And they're oftentimes cheesy, if, especially if they've written their own, right? And we all smile and go, oh, that's so sweet. But then finally, the covenant is made before witnesses. This is the third dimension, the third direction of it. In other words, witnesses are called together to a wedding ceremony, not simply so the bride and groom can flaunt their creativity or show what a wonderful event they can put on or how many friends and attendants they have strung out by the side of the, the uh, stage. It's none of these things. The fact that witnesses are being called is so that those that show up would ratify the covenant being made. In other words, weddings, I'm going to challenge you with this, weddings are not a spectator sport. They're participatory. And you get jury duty, you don't get called to be a witness so you can sit back and just observe things and eat popcorn, right? You're participating, you're to be engaged, you're to make a judgment. When you're called to be a witness to a wedding ceremony, you're called to affirm what is happening, ratifying. You're participating in the covenant that is being made because it's being formed in three directions to God and between the individuals and in front of the community. All right, our second question this morning. Who is marriage for? Who is marriage for? Now, I'm going to answer this by going two different directions for it. The first is this, who may enter into it? In other words, this is sort of the restrictive case. And then secondly is, who benefits from it? Who benefits from it? And so the first thing is this, marriage is for, the Bible teaches through and through, marriage is for one man and one woman. It is for one man and one woman. This is the traditional definition of marriage this is the clear teaching of scripture from beginning to end and what we're finding in our culture what has long been assumed is now having to be articulated and argued for and i and i and i do this unapologetically okay even if if i could refer to the supreme court uh decision justice kennedy uh, who voted for the striking down of the traditional definition of marriage also wrote something very interesting in his um uh, in, the, in the case decision, he also noted that those with religious convictions against this decision have the right to passionately speak against it. And it doesn't matter if the courts gave me that right or not. The word of God gives me that right and that responsibility, and so I will. I do want to say this. That in a room this size with this many people listening or listening online or whatever, there's no doubt someone here or many of you here that are affected by this, or maybe you feel infringed upon by the fact that the Bible teaches one man and one woman, and that offends you. Um, And I want to say this. I am apologetic about the tone of many Christians within the church over the years. I am sad about that. I think too many Christians are happy to have a shrill tone and wag their finger and do so without compassion or understanding. Nevertheless, the Bible is clear on this. And what it affirms, restricting marriage to one man and to one woman, is for the couple's best. It is for humanity's best. It is marriage as God designed it. 
It is his good thing, and God only commands good things. And so we will affirm it, and we will affirm it because it is for the best of humanity. And wherever marriage is not entered into that manner as God has ordained, it distorts something that God has made. The Bible teaches that all of mankind are image bearers of God, both individually and especially as male and female. And we heard a lot about this from Sam Andreatis in the last in the Christian Thought Forum. And let me show this to you. In Genesis 1, if you would turn there, verses 26 through 28. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image. And let me just pause there. If you've never noticed it before, let us make mankind, God says. Here we see the triune God interacting with the, member, the members of the triune God interacting in a sense with one another to say, let us do this thing. So we see the Trinity right here in the beginning. Let us make mankind in our image and our likeness so that they may rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the sky in the sky over the livestock and all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the air and over every living creature that moves along the ground. What this passage teaches, well, it teaches us a ton of things, but it teaches us that individually, each one of us is an image bearer of God. There is a capacity, there's, that means so many things, but certainly it means that there's a capacity for relationship within each one of us, just as God has relationship in himself. <coughs> so whether we're married or whether we're single, we have this capacity. But as male and female we more accurately image or portray the image of God as male and female in relationship. In other words, if there had only been a man world, all man, just imagine it. It sounds terrifying. (laughs) All man, everywhere, all the time, that's it. Not only would it die off and not be able to uh, promote itself, it would smell bad, right? It, it would be terrible. And ultimately, God would be imaged less. We would have a distorted understanding of who God is for only looking at a, at a whole man world. Okay? Same is true on the other side. If we had an only women world, all women, everywhere, all the time, only women, it would smell much better. That's true. But in the same way, it would distort greatly the nature of God. We would not know all of him. It is male and female coming together in covenant marriage, in a dynamic of relationship that helps us to see the nature of the triune God more clearly. And that is what God is doing with marriage. He wants us to see him in his glory, in his beauty. And it is seen best that way. Who is marriage for? Well, it is also certainly for the benefit of those who enter into it. There's this great passage in Proverbs 18.22. It says this, He who finds a wife finds what is good and receives favor from the Lord. 
I use this verse in almost every wedding that I do, and the joke comes right afterwards, which is, as a husband, I've looked for the corollary to this passage, which says that she who finds a husband finds what is good and receives favor from the Lord. And there's no such verse. So, a little startling there. But I believe that one of the principal reasons um, that God has given marriage to us is as a tool of sanctification. That is, we can become more and more like our Savior as we continually die to self in our marriages. Which is what marriage is. A slow and steady death of self. Okay? I say that with a smile, but it's true. (laughs) It's true. In fact, I joke with couples that I'm doing premarital counseling with. One of the first things I tell them is that when you get married, half of you dies. And when you have kids... The other half of you dies. And you end up at some point along the way just feeling, uh, you know, kind of this just quivering mass of availability for your family. You, you kind of go, where am I in all of this? I feel like I just exist for everybody else. That's marriage. That is a covenant of self-giving. And We will say at a wedding, you know, to to bring some beauty to it as we try to, that marriage has the ability to double your joys and divide your pains. And that is true. But it also brings on an onslaught of other issues. It challenges us. I think one of the purposes in marriage is quite simply to bring up and to surface issues of immaturity in our lives. It's to refine us. It's to show us who we really are because we cannot hide from this person. They know us very often more than we know ourselves. They will confront us with things that we have overlooked or excuse away. I I think that too often couples will get into marriage and it will be difficult and things will surface and they'll kind of throw up their hands and think, I must have a bad marriage. Issues have shown up. He's really selfish, or she is, or whatever. And I would simply say, good, marriage is now having its way with you. It is meant to refine you and sanctify you and put to death that selfish self and to raise up one who is in a covenant of self-giving relationship as is the triune God. I like the way Gary Thomas says that maybe marriage is more for our holiness than our happiness. It's good. The benefit of marriage is not limited simply to those who enter into it, but it's also a benefit for those who observe it. That's the last point. Marriage is for the benefit of those who observe it. In Ephesians 5, verse 25, Paul says this, Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body, just as Christ does the church. For we are members of his body. For this reason, and here's our seminal passage again in Paul. For this reason, 
A man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Now here's the kicker. This is a profound mystery that I'm talking about. Christ in the church. However, each one of you must also love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. Paul says the mystery that I'm talking about here, even as I'm talking about marriage and what's happening here, is is it shows us something of God. It shows us how Christ loves the church. In other words, this is a shocking thing. Let this sink in. But there is a reality that God has entrusted to those of us who are married. That our marriages, our marriage relationship would be a lens through which people would more greatly understand God by having viewed our relationship. And if that is not sobering, it doesn't bring you to your knees, and I don't know what will. I'll give you this by way of closing because I'm out of time here. If our marriages really do reflect a mutual covenant of self-giving, then we'll reap something beautiful from them in our day-to-day lives. But not only that, they will be instructive and evangelistic and they will display the glory of God and his deep love for the church. So are you married? You have a much greater responsibility than just navigating the day to day. You're a message bearer for God of his very nature. Let's pray. Our Father, we rejoice in this institution that you have given us in marriage. It is awesome. And it is not at all easy. I pray now, Lord, that for those who are single and here, who may be frustrated or um, upset at some point at what they've heard this morning, Lord, would you calm them and heal them. May they understand you through the institution of marriage, even if it is not an institution they're in. God, for those of us who have been entrusted with this thing, may we give ourselves to it well. May it truly be a covenant, and may it be a covenant of self-giving. May we understand the full dimensions of its reality and the full import of it, not only in our lives, but in the lives of those who will observe. God, may we be a gospel that people can read. May they know you through the way we relate to one another. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.